0: Welcome to Silicon Valley Trends, a free podcast series published by Silicon Valley Business School. I'm your host, David Smith. At Silicon Valley Business School, we provide affordable, real-world online business education to everyone, everywhere, and guide entrepreneurs towards success with their startup ventures. This is the first in a series of episodes on the startup journey, and today we're talking about targeting your destination. Future episodes will deal with other aspects of your journey, like generating momentum, gathering your provisions, setting and achieving milestones, and selecting your traveling companions. In this series on the startup journey, you'll learn that you're most likely to reach your destination if you know exactly where you're going, you have sufficient fuel to get there, you plan for contingencies, maintain momentum, and assemble a winning team. But first, let's go on a more familiar journey. All right, I just got in my car. I'm heading up to Lake Tahoe for a short ski trip. I am on the other side of Silicon Valley. I'm heading up to the Sierra Mountains. It's about five hour drive. So the first thing I've got to do here is set the GPS navigation system put in the address of my um, hotel and okay it's giving me three options it's giving me a shortest one is to drive through sacramento which might get busy over there depending on what time i get there the other options are a little bit slower but you know what i'm going to go by sacramento through sacramento I'm to stop there and get some lunch okay so that's the route i'm taking and it's going to take four hours 47 minutes all right okay so uh, there's lots of snow and ice up there I just uh, got out some snow chains that uh, checked that they work on the car they seem to be okay so I have chains in case it's really bad snow up there I have the cars loaded up with gas I have a huge bottle of water here I have snacks um, this place uh reminds me tahoe was where the the donna passes and where the Donner party got stuck midwinter they were a party of um, travelers settlers coming to settle um, california from the east coast uh, in wagon trains the wagon trains got stuck in the snow in the sierras they just got in the wrong place at the wrong time and uh, they were stuck there for months and they had to survive by cannibalizing themselves so they became cannibals and uh, I so I got plenty of food here my I couldn't even cannibalize anybody because there's no one else to eat my friend was gonna come with me but he forgot to um, ask his wife and turns out his wife just had five hours of surgery so she thought it wasn't going to be a great idea for him to come away for a couple of days to Tahoe so I'm on my own. So I got all my gear together, I've got my skis, I've got my hats, boots, uh, I have gloves, scarves, all that good stuff, I check the weather, it looks good. And uh, I just need to figure out where I'm gonna go for lunch and that's it, I am off up to the Sierra Mountains and I will talk to you in a while. It's making good progress, there wasn't really any traffic on the road, I just got up to the snow line here in the mountains and uh, then all of a sudden we are stopped there's road works they're not road works they're actually removing trees uh so they've just blocked all the traffic uh, while they take down these trees i don't know how long it's going to take just arrived in tahoe it's 2 3 pm um pretty smooth ride everything's fine i got here before the blizzard this trip to tahoe came along just as i was preparing this podcast in a way it was a big fail. I was sure there would be a bunch of situations and unforeseen issues that would come up and delay my progress, giving me the opportunity to point out that unforeseen obstacles appear and the journey usually takes a lot longer than you planned for. But wouldn't you know, when you're looking for obstacles, the road is remarkably clear. The combination of planning, good timing, good luck and an excellent navigation system made for a smooth trip this time around. When my wife tries to memorize maps and gets into arguments with Google Assistant on which is the best route, I've come to rely on my smartphone-based navigation system which tracks where I am, monitors traffic, finds the best route, and now it even warns me when there are speed traps coming up on the road. Unfortunately, there are no such navigation systems for startup ventures, But that's something we'll be talking about in future episodes. So the first thing I did when getting into the car was enter the address, into the navigation system. Targeting your destination is a core component of your travel plan. If you don't know where you're going, what chance do you have of ever getting there? It's not a guarantee of success though. Even the Donner party had a destination in mind when they set out and their journey didn't exactly end in idyllic conditions. Once you've targeted your destination, you can plot your route, pick your team, and start to generate some momentum. Imagine your goal is to reach the mountain peak you can see ahead of you in the distance. You get to a fork in the road. The fork to the left heads in the direction of the mountain peak. The fork in the right heads away in the opposite direction. Your decision is pretty clear. You take the fort that's leading you in the direction of your target destination, the mountain peak. In fact, this is how this magical process works. Once you've programmed in your target destination, your built-in navigation system makes decisions designed to help you get there. I promise you this podcast series is not going to stray into the occult, or anything strange. But the principles of goal setting can be very effective in helping you make decisions in a variety of situations. Targeting your destination can help you get whatever you want in life, so long as what you want is within the realms of possibility. I set my target destination about a five hour drive away, and my vehicle was a car that's designed to travel those distances with no problem. If I'd set my target destination to be the moon that would not be within the realms of possibility unless my vehicle was a rocket. If you set your goals carefully you'll find that they can be successfully achieved in the end. Goal setting can be very effective and doesn't only apply to building a successful startup. What you're doing is programming your mind to make decisions that navigate you toward your chosen goal. This is something that high achievers do in all fields of business and life. Athletes and sports people have found it helpful for them to visualize the moment they win their races or receive their medals. Champions generally strive to become champions and program their minds accordingly. They keep their eyes on the prize. Religious folk believe in the power of prayer. A prayer before bedtime has proved effective at programming your subconscious mind for centuries. Hippie types might call it the law of attraction and believe it's the universe that's delivering the results you ask for. Personally, I don't believe it's the universe or some invisible spirit that's guiding you to reach your target destination. I think it's your own mind, but you can believe whatever you want. The point is, after you target your destination, don't be surprised when you find yourself arriving there at some point in future and the target destination is not just for you you'll find that your team members work a lot more effectively when they know where they're going and they all have the same target in mind that's enough of the hippie stuff now let's look at some of the alternative destinations you might want to select for your startup We're going to talk about independent survival, where you build a business independent of outside investment with the goal of generating profitable revenues for years to come. We'll talk about IPO, where you build a company that has its shares traded on the public markets. IPO stands for Initial Public Offering. Then we'll divide the sale of the company into two types. Cash flow sale is where you sell the company as a profitable going concern. The buyer is getting a cash flow generating business. The term asset sale has a more specific meaning in legal jargon, but for the purpose of our startup journey, we'll use this to refer to a situation where a buyer acquires your company for your product or technology. In Silicon Valley, there are situations where unprofitable companies are acquired when they have a hot product or some unique technology or asset that will enhance the buyer's business. So let's start here with our target destination of independent survival. For most entrepreneurs, the target is to build a profitable business that generates ongoing revenues for the family, the business partners if you have any, and yourself. The business can survive independently for years to come this type of business can be very successful. In fact, some of the most successful types of businesses in the US Census are law firms and CPA accounting firms. These are service businesses that are built to run independently for years, feeding their owners and the employees with a healthy income. We'll have specific episodes on this topic in future, but let's spend a moment to think about the investor's business model. Venture capital, hedge funds, private equity, and other forms of investors all operate under essentially the same business model. They form a fund, typically with a 10-year lifespan, they invest their own money, and they raise finance from other investors. The fund managers earn a management fee of usually around 2% of the funds under management, plus a carried interest, a profit share, usually 20% of the profits made so the fund invests in the first few years then it needs to cash out before the 10-year lifespan expires when it will distribute all the profits to the funds investors they're often known as limited partners let's say a venture capital fund is formed with 100 million dollars of capital in the first few years it invests 10 million each into 10 startups they normally do syndicate and they spread their risk a little bit more than that. But that's this is a good kind of baseline to start from. $100 million, 10 startups, 10 million each. Let's say the fund is lucky and one of the startups reaches a successful exit. The investors are looking for returns of at least 20x from their, the, those successful investments. A venture capital fund investing $10 into a startup is going to be looking for at least $200 million return on its $10 million investment in that one particular company. 20x is not at all unusual. Many investors are looking for a return of 40 times or even more their original investment. Yes, it is a lot, but remember, the fund has to make a profit and that's not so easy when something in the region of 95% of venture capital-backed startups fail. The ones that succeed have to pay for the losses made by all the failures. And then make a profit for the investors and their limited partners. So investors are looking for a return of at least 20 times the, fund that the funds they inject into a company. And they want the return within about 7 years. An investor injecting $10 million will be looking for at least $200 million. And it's going to want that money back before the fund closes at the end of its 10-year term. The only way of getting a return like this is through a sale of the company or an IPO. When a company makes a profit, it can retain the cash to fuel future growth, or it can distribute the profit to shareholders by paying a dividend on the shares. Even the most successful startup is unable to pay an investor $200 million in dividends during the first seven years of business. I don't believe that's ever been seen even in the tech sector. Venture capitalists and other investors have to invest in companies that are likely to IPO or get acquired within a five to ten year window of time. As soon as you raise finance from investors, the pressure is on to sell the whole company to a hungry buyer or register shares so they can be sold to the public following an IPO. You see, shares cannot be sold to the public unless they're registered with the SEC. We'll cover this in future episodes, but shares in a startup are somewhat locked and cannot be sold to the unwashed public. IPO and acquisition are pretty much the only target destinations for companies with outside investors. Which brings us back to the notion of building a profitable business that provides income for the business owners for years to come. It's a great thing to achieve, but it has to be done without using other people's money. It has to be able to survive independently of support from outside investors like venture capital funds. You have to fund a business like this from your own pocket or from bootstrapping. So this is not usually suitable for companies that need time to develop technology or need some significant capital to get set up. Venture capital has grown in Silicon Valley because it takes years and millions of dollars to develop technology. For some industries, the setup costs are so huge that startups in those fields cannot be bootstrapped. Unless the entrepreneur is a billionaire. If you're looking for a family business that will feed and house you for decades to come, you're not a good match with venture capital. You don't want venture investors and they don't want you. Investors are really looking for companies with potential to IPO. They want to go through the IPO process so their shares can be sold on the public stock markets. For a tech company to IPO, the company is going to need to produce tens of millions in profit and show Wall Street investors that it has huge potential for future growth. Then it's going to need to be blessed by a reputable investment bank and go through a rigorous diligence process leading up to the point that the shares can be sold to the public via one of the stock markets. We actually have uh, an IPO and securities regulation course on Silicon Valley Business School That explains how all this works. If you're going to target IPO you'll need to hit some aggressive sales milestones. Navigate through the seed stage, early stage, expansion stage and mezzanine stages of the startup journey, each one requiring a new round of financing. You'll need an experienced CEO with a proven track record that's impressive to Wall Street and that usually means the visionary entrepreneur stepping aside and handing over management control. Constructing a company for IPO generally means building extensive sales and marketing teams, capable of generating impressive results. IPO is the dream for investors and for many entrepreneurs. Problem is, there are usually only between 100 and 200 IPOs in the US each year. I ran the numbers, and on average, an entrepreneur is more likely to get struck by lightning than achieve a successful IPO. The climate for IPOs changed with the conditions of the stock market. In the dot-com boom times, there were more than 400 IPOs a year. Following the dot-com crash, the number of IPOs dropped to less than 100, and these weren't tech startups at that point. As IPO is such a difficult journey, and the chances of reaching IPO are so slim, you might want to target selling the company as a profitable going concern. Because the buyer is acquiring the company for its cash flow, and because it's the name I used in my zero to IPO book, this is the destination I'll refer to as a cash flow sale. A sale of the company after it's achieved profitability and positive cash flow. Building a company that becomes profitable and cash flow positive is the essence of business. And you might think this is the goal of all entrepreneurs. But sometimes the product or technology is more valuable than the business. And there are some types of business that are so specialized or burdensome to the operate that they just are not sellable at any price. So what's the difference between targeting independent survival and cash flow sale? While well, the roots are quite similar in that you're building a fully functional business with effective sales and marketing operations. But there are some considerations when you're looking to sell the company and your investors are anxious for you to sell out at an enormous price. One of the most successful entrepreneurs I know explained to me how he managed to sell several of his startups. He set up the company, created a core product, then he studied the marketplace, and drew up a list of potential buyers. Then he tailored his product to complement the offering of the potential buyers, and he went out and hunted the buyers down, which in his case meant traveling all over the world. He met with them at trade shows, basically got in their faces, and started to negotiate distribution arrangements and partnerships with them. After the buyer started to distribute his product and saw that it could be profitable, he planted the seed that one of this company's competitors had inquired about a possible acquisition. To keep the product out of the hands of a competitor, the buyer explored the idea of acquiring his company, and he soon negotiated a lucrative deal where he sold a startup and cashed out. He said that once he had the price agreed, he stayed calm until he got into the bathroom and then he screamed with joy. So it's not unusual for the buyer to be a large corporation with established sales, marketing, and distribution channels. So looking at where your target customers are buying from today might be a good place to start when trying to form a list of potential acquirers. It's important when negotiating these distribution agreements that you don't give the company perpetual rights, because if they get to sell your product forever through a distribution agreement, they might not need to never ever see the need to buy your company at all. Also, and we'll discuss this elsewhere in this episode, unless your technology is protected by patents, copyrights, or other forms of intellectual property protection, you might find that these large corporations simply copy your product, which will certainly be a lot cheaper than buying your company. When you're looking to cash out by selling the company, it's a good idea to keep all your books in order and negotiate contracts with suppliers and customers in anticipation that the company could be acquired at some point in future. The buyer will have lawyers combing through your accounts and your legal agreements before the purchase can be closed. And any skeletons in the closet can derail the acquisition. Our Silicon Valley Business School course on mergers and acquisitions explains the mechanics of how these cash flow sale transactions work And you might find some of the aspects of these deals to be a little surprising. But it's our course on valuation that explains how companies are valued. And you'll see that the price is usually driven by the financials. Buyers usually set the price based on the startup's revenues and profits. And the prices are somewhat predictable and not particularly impressive. However, there are situations where buyers get into a bidding war and the prices go a little crazy. The crazy prices usually come about when the startup has generated huge momentum in the market. If your startup is signing up customers at an impressive rate and generating a lot of buzz in your industry, this can attract the eye of potential acquirers and it can change the basis on which your company is valued. The stories you see in the press of startups being sold for billions of dollars almost always involve bidding wars between deep-pocketed acquirers and startups with tremendous market momentum. However, not all acquisitions are successful. In fact, a large percentage of acquisitions turn out to be complete flops. My client, a large Silicon Valley equipment supplier, acquired a company for $1.7 billion with a B. The company manufactured a very sophisticated piece of equipment with products priced around $10 million each. After being acquired, the new management failed to deliver the new product updates on time, had some quality control issues, customers were somewhat reluctant to pay the $10 million asking price for unreliable products, and believe it or not, following a change in corporate strategy, the parent company decided to kill the product line altogether. After spending $1.7 billion, they gave me the patents and asked me to sell them to the highest bidder, The patents were not sellable, as they were were so specialized that no one was infringing them. And the company received essentially nothing at all from its $1.7 billion acquisition. This story is not unique in Silicon Valley or elsewhere. There's a story in the news today about MySpace. If you remember MySpace, it was the leading website on the internet in 2006 with more traffic than Google was acquired by News Corporation in 2005, not exactly a forward-looking tech company. News Corporation paid $580 million for Myspace. The integration with the new parent obviously didn't go so well, and Myspace was sold by News Corp in 2011 for $35 million, representing a loss of $545 million or 96 percent loss in six years. This might sound like a big fail but it's small when compared to many of the other corporate M&A flops by large corporate buyers in Silicon Valley and the tech sector. Nevertheless the buying continues and data shows that merger and acquisition activity is still quite active. Large corporations usually under pressure from their investors to grow their revenues and profits often look to acquisitions as their best route to growth. Although they won't be asking you to put up a for sale sign, your venture capital investors are going to be looking to find a buyer for your startup. And there are some things you can do to help facilitate the process. There are a few things about acquisition that you might be interested to know if you're an entrepreneur. As I've mentioned before, When the company is sold and the proceeds distributed to shareholders, a line forms with the investors who hold preferred stock at the front of the line. The investors take back the money they invested and then a return on that investment before sharing the proceeds with you and the other holders of common stock at the back of the line. I've interviewed entrepreneurs that found themselves with investment deals where the investors get 11 times their money back before sharing any of the proceeds with the founders. It's unusual. But in that scenario, if the investor injects $10 million and the company sells for $110 million, all those proceeds go to the investors and the entrepreneur earns nothing. This is unusual, and as we will discuss in future episodes, typically typically you can expect the investor to get back 1.5 times their investment before sharing the rest of the proceeds with the founders and the other common stockholders. Clearly when targeting cash flow sale as an entrepreneur you want to try to build the company with the minimum of outside investment if you want to cash out yourself and you don't want all the proceeds to go to the investors. Another thing that you will learn from our SVBS mergers and acquisitions course is that a good percentage of the purchase price, usually about 10%, will be held back in escrow for a period of time to pay for the taxes, litigation claims, claims to cover errors in the books, and other liabilities that were not disclosed and appear after the purchase has been completed. You might want to take an interest in the escrow holdback arrangements when selling your company, as the entrepreneurs can be held personally liable for these and other claims. So although reaching a cash flow sale is certainly not easy and needs to be carefully navigated with the help of experts selling a profitable cash flow positive company is usually the best way for entrepreneurs to cash out and earn a return on investment from their sweat equity. Now let's turn to our other target destination, asset sale. In our SVBS website Silicon Valley Business School, you'll see a video interview I recorded with a lady called Imin Lee, who left Cisco, formed a startup, built a product that Cisco customers needed, filed patents, entered a distribution arrangement where Cisco sold her product to Cisco customers, and then got acquired for $65 million. You guessed it, by Cisco. My interview with Imin took place at Cisco's office. Like a boomerang, she'd left, formed a startup and then came back after the acquisition. Cisco didn't buy I'm in startup for its cash flow. It wanted the products and underlying technology which solved a security problem that was important to Cisco's customers. Ignoring the fact that a lawyer and an accountant wouldn't classify this as an asset sale, we're calling this type of M&A transaction an asset sale. Again, partially because that's what I called it in my Zero to IPO book. Cisco saw Imin's product as a potentially valuable asset to add to its catalog. So it bought the company. In this case, the company was just a disposable wrapper for the product and the intellectual property. Uh, I was referred to IMIN by a venture capital investor that was actually trying to invest in her company when she decided to sell out instead. She had only raised a small amount of angel funding and had not issued any preferred stock. So when she sold out to Cisco, the $65 million proceeds of the sale could be shared among the founders, rather than all going to the investors. I mean, didn't have to stand in line behind any venture capital investors or other preferred stockholders when the proceeds of the sale were distributed. She and the other common stockholders shared out the whole 65 million amongst themselves, according to their percentage holdings of common stock, after the angel investors had been paid out, of course, but that was a relatively small amount. If IMIN had her team and her team had decided not to sell out and take funds from the VC investor instead, she would have effectively given up control of the company. For its preferred stock, the investor would have acquired rights to decide if, when and how the company is sold. And the investor would never have been able to accept an offer of $65 because this would not represent a 20x return on its investment. Let's say the investor wanted to inject $10 million at a 20x return, that would mean the investor would need a return of $200 million. When you calculate that the other shareholders need to be paid out as well, the sale price would have to probably be in excess of $300 million to satisfy the investors and persuade them to accept an acquisition offer from Cisco. Or anybody else, actually. We'll explore this in future episodes, but in this scenario, after refusing Cisco's $65 million, the venture-backed company would have found itself competing with Cisco in the marketplace. And competing with huge giants like that doesn't often end very well for the little guy. in Lee instead sold out and distributed the $65 million among the startup founders. 65 million might not be a big win for venture capital investors, but it can represent a successful result when shared among a handful of individuals. There's no denying that large corporations can be slow moving and bureaucratic. Innovative new products and technologies are often best developed by small startup teams working outside the corporate culture, but they're best commercialized by large corporations like with marketing muscle and well-established channels of distribution. Large corporations are often looking for new products and revenue streams so you'd think there was a big opportunity to match innovative entrepreneurs with large corporations. But IMIN's journey was remarkably smooth and it's usually not that simple. I've come across a lot of startups with great technology that fail because they just don't have the marketing muscle and the distribution channels to get the product into the customer's hands. In many cases, the customers aren't prepared to take the risk of buying from a startup. And it's not a surprise when startups fail at an alarming rate. And buyers in these companies don't want to get the blame for buying a product that can't be supported, as they generally want to keep their jobs. On one side, then, you have lots of hot products and technologies held by struggling or failed startups. And on the other side, you have large corporations looking for new products and revenue streams. Wouldn't it be great to have an online trading exchange where entrepreneurs could sell their technologies to these large corporate buyers? At the same time, the exchange could be used to match technologies coming out of universities and research labs with large corporate buyers. What a great idea. It was such a great idea that I formed Tinex as a technology trading exchange in 2003. There's only one flaw in the master plan. Large corporations don't like spending money unless they have to. If they can just copy the technology and use it without paying the inventors a dime, then that's what they'll do. The only thing stopping large corporations from stealing technology from startups and innovative entrepreneurs is the patent system. And as we'll discuss in more depth in future episodes, the patent system doesn't provide much protection these days for the inventors. Large corporations will usually build a product using whatever technology they think is most appropriate, ignoring patents, until they're faced with a patent infringement lawsuit. Then, while they continue to infringe the patents by selling products that in- incorporate the patented inventions, they'll hire an army of lawyers to attack the patents and the inventors, essentially trying to outmuscle them. I'm not hating on large corporations, it's just reality. The management of a corporation is acting in the interest of the shareholders, and they have a duty to avoid paying out money unless they're forced to. In more than 15 years of brokering these transactions through Tinax, I've never seen a corporation pay to acquire technology when it can get away with reverse engineering, duplicating the technology and I've never come across a large company that pays a patent license fee without putting up a fight. It's become much more difficult to force a large corporation to pay patent royalties in recent years due to changes in the patent laws resulting from lobbying in Washington by large, high-tech companies. And we'll be covering these in much more detail in future episodes. Anyhow, after realizing that rampant theft in the market meant selling unpatented technology was not a viable business plan, we focused Tynex on patents and built Tynex as a patent exchange. Tynex is still helping Entrepreneurs and innovators to reach asset sale exits and monetize their inventions. But our focus really is on selling patents, and it has been for over a decade. Asset sale as a destination for a startup venture can be highly profitable for people like Imin Lee, who are able to build a hot product and a strong portfolio of patents without raising venture capital funding but very few entrepreneurs are able to cash out in these types of exits. Instead of reaching the land of milk and honey, many journeys grind to a halt in the dire circumstances somewhat reminiscent to those faced by the Donner Party. Although you're not going to target bankruptcy or an orderly shutdown of the company when you set out, statistically, these are the most likely destinations for your startup journey. The most likely destination for a startup is some form of shutdown, which usually takes place after the company has lost momentum, run up debts, and run out of funds. Once the gas tank is empty, the vehicle usually stops. For every entrepreneur that cashes out through a cash flow sale or asset sale, there are at least 19 startup journeys that terminate in some form of shutdown. And for every entrepreneur that cashes out shares by selling them on the public stock market following an IPO, there are around 10,000 entrepreneurs that are unable to sell their startup shares at any price. Once your startup loses momentum and misses milestones, it can be very difficult to recover and get it back on track. It's difficult to raise finance for a startup that's failed to achieve milestones and started to look a little shaky. Usually what happens is the company runs out of cash. Once the company is unable to pay its debts when they become due it enters what's called the realm of insolvency. At this point the whole game changes. The management of a company is usually acting in the interest of the shareholders. But when it enters the realm of insolvency, law requires the management switch its focus to protecting the creditors. I'm always amazed when I give talks in business schools that the MBA students are not taught how to navigate through cash crisis and they're not familiar with the world of bankruptcy. When you think that cash crisis, company shutdown and bankruptcy are the most likely business scenarios they're going to face, you would think that business schools would prepare their MBA students for these eventualities. Unfortunately, the business school professors aren't usually familiar with these situations themselves, and this is one of the examples of where you learn the most important business skills in law school. We have a full course on bankruptcy and cash crisis management at Silicon Valley Business School, and it covers the materials you would cover in law school. But I'll explain some of the most important things you need to know right now with a few examples. I had a client that was prepared to be and planning to run a patent licensing campaign. They had a set of fabulous patents. The problem was the company had borrowed funds from an investor using the patents as collateral. The investor pushed for repayment of the loan. The company didn't have funds to repay. So the company decided to file for bankruptcy protection which prevents creditors from chasing for repayment of their debts. They could have filed for a Chapter 11 reorganization or a Chapter 7 shutdown. Because they chose Chapter 7, the company and its assets were placed under the control of a court-appointed trustee. The management team lost all control of the company and its assets. The trustee's role was simply to liquidate the assets and get the best price possible by selling them off. In this case, it took the trustee two years to figure out what to do, by which time the patents were almost expired. If the management team had filed for protection from creditors under chapter 11 of the bankruptcy code, they would have presented a plan of reorganization to the bankruptcy court, and with court approval, management would have retained control and likely have been able to go ahead with the licensing campaign. Chapter 7 is a court-approved reorganisation. General Motors, Chrysler, American Airlines and Texaco are examples of companies that have successfully emerged from a Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing and reorganisation. Where Chapter 11 is like going into hospital, Chapter 7 is like going to the undertakers. If you want to stay out of court and stay out of jail, you want to be very careful once your company starts to run out of cash. As I mentioned before, once you're in the zone of insolvency, management has to start to act in the interests of creditors, particular, particularly when the creditors are the tax authorities. Entrepreneurs often wait too long. Running up too many debts and unpaid taxes before they take the decision to shut the company down. We'll cover this in more detail in future episodes, but you really want to orchestrate an orderly shutdown where creditors are paid off, rather than let the company go through a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. There are no debtors' prisons in the United States, this was written into the Constitution, and the Bankruptcy Code provides protection for entrepreneurs who act responsibly but you can find yourself getting into deep trouble if instead of paying taxes or paying creditors, you put company funds in your own pocket or you recklessly continue to incur debts once the company is already insolvent. Being insolvent means you cannot pay the debts as they come due. I suggest you learn when and how to shut a company down before you start a company up. It's like learning to swim before you dive in the ocean. When acting responsibly in the situation where the company is approaching insolvency and you can't pay creditors when their bills fall due, you're effectively switching target destination to an orderly shutdown as the destination. And you have to switch to that before it's too late. Switching destinations is another topic we should discuss briefly before we wrap up today. Let's say you set out for IPO. You raise investment funds for the seed stage, the early stage, and expansion stages. But you find that the climate on Wall Street is not welcoming to IPOs. Your most likely exit at that point is a sale of the company. In order for your investors to collect their return on investment, they're going to want you to sell the company to a large corporate acquirer. This could be good for the investors, but it might not be good as an exit for you as the entrepreneur. Let's say you raise 50 million from a variety of investors. They're all going to hold preferred stock and stand in line in front of you when the proceeds of the sale are shared out. If the preferred stockholders have a 2x return before sharing with the common stockholders, they invested 50 million, and th- which is not unusual when you've got all the way up to IPO. 50 million is actually not a a large amount of investment for that type of company that stage of uh, of the process well let's say that's 50 million the company sold for 100 million in that case with the 2x uh, liquidation preference the whole 100 million goes to the investors leaving nothing for yourself and the other holders of the common stock it doesn't matter how many shares of common stock you hold i know i've mentioned this before and we will have an episode covering this and related issues in more detail. But the point here is that building a company for IPO is very costly. Usually requires a large injection of investment capital, and the more funds you raise, the less you will receive once the company is sold. If you're going to target IPO and switch destination to a sale of the company instead, the sale price is going to have to be enormous for you as the entrepreneur to cash out, and earn anything substantial from the sale. In this scenario, switching destinations from IPO to a sale of the company can have detrimental effects. On the other hand, if you set out targeting independent survival, bootstrap your business, raising little or no capital from outside investors, generate momentum and you reach a point where you're profitable and able to sell the company, you'll be first in line and collect the lion's share of the proceeds of the sale. Without investors looking to cash out quickly, you'll not be under pressure to sell and you'll be able to take your time, waiting for the value to increase and picking the perfect time to sell. If you can bootstrap a company and get it up and running profitably without using other people's money, you'll have the freedom to make your own decisions and call all the shots you can run the business as a going concern for as long as you like, or sell out whenever you choose. In some cases, you might even be able to IPO and sell shares to the public via the stock market. But it's exceedingly rare for a company to IPO that hasn't been financed by venture capital and other investors. Wrapping up, this episode is the first in a series about the startup journey We talked about targeting your destination and explored IPO, cash flow sale, asset sale and independent survival as alternatives that you might want to choose. In future episodes, we'll be talking about generating momentum, assembling a winning team and gathering your provisions. I seasoned experts that can provide advice and guidance via the chat rooms on the Silicon Valley Business School website. I hope you will join us for future podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll get new episodes as and when they're released. And please rate us in your podcast player. This will help us get the word out and reach entrepreneurs and the people we're trying to help with this podcast series. That's it for today. Hope you tune in to the next Silicon Valley Trends, the podcast for innovators and entrepreneurs.